0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AI Coffee Hour with Brainpool AI. I'm your host, Dominic Richmond, and I have the fantastic job of running a community of over 500 experts in artificial intelligence. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a member of our network to discuss everything from commercialization to ethics of artificial intelligence, all over a nice coffee. This time, we're joined by Dr. Andy Edmonds, the founder of Dal AI and a true artificial intelligence pioneer. Andy's direct involvement in AI since the 80s makes him uniquely positioned to guide us through developing transparent and ethically sound solutions. So cut through the jargon and complexities of the technology and join us for an hour of AI and Coffee. Uh, Hello and welcome to the AI Coffee Hour with BrainPool AI. Today we are sitting down with our very special guest, Dr. Andy Edmonds. Hi Andy, how are you? Hi. thank you. How about you, Dominic? Oh, very good today uh, on this bright and sunny Monday here of recording. Andy, you're an absolute expert in the field, and you've you've been working in AI quite a while. I think is the is a fair way to say. Um, what can you tell us, perhaps, about the history of artificial intelligence and kind of attitudes towards it since you started out, and how those might have changed?
1: Yes, well, it's been a very long time. It's been somewhere like 35 years in AI, which probably most people think AI doesn't go back that far, but in fact, it goes right back to the 50s. And uh, originally, uh, people attempting to create neural networks with uh, mechanical, electrical uh, things, strange contraptions and uh, uh, bitter rivalries and, and vast <laughs> amounts of money being spent to try to work out what the course of AI really was. So AI started off effectively being an attempt to reproduce natural neural networks. And still that's a, that's a sort of a theme, although nobody suggests, I think, that, that neural networks are anything other than inspired by um, human neur- neurons. But um, it started off with that, that particular aspect, and then almost immediately a sort of range war broke out with the, the other side of AI, which you might call language and logic. The idea that that we can take knowledge and we can encode it and we can teach a machine to to handle that that knowledge and um that that's the sort of the, the proper way to do things whereas the original the first attempt to create an intelligent machine was an attempt to to use sort of neural methods and from the very beginning one of the arguments with uh, against neural methods was well how can you tell what the things learnt and how can you be sure it has sufficient representation ability? And so that 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 was the very first battle in in AI, and uh, initially the sort of language and logic people won out. So I joined AI in the eighties uh, when neural networks had had a revival. There was a, a a book written with a bunch of algorithms, and I started off really by by reproducing those algorithms in in C. It was at the time because that was the only language available and created the, the first products on this side of the Atlantic that actually used neural networks. So, one might call those the sort of the first data mining system. That was a company called Neural Computer Sciences. Basically, I, for, for the first two or three years, we sold neural systems and we talked to all manner of people. There was a lot of interest at the time. One of the things that cropped up again and again is well, how can we trust these systems? We don't understand what's going on inside them. Can you explain what they've learned? Can you explain how well they've learned it? And these were subjects which were huge research topics too, and always have been ever since. To pick up a neural network journals sort of 20 years later is to see the same things debated again and again, which is a really strange thing. But I, but for me, sometime around about the 90s, um, a sort of crucial point was reached where I decided that that I wanted to move away from non-neural methods, uh, to, to non-neural methods, away from neural methods. And that was... Um, that was a, a, a failed attempt. Almost happened for Reuters to buy the company I had at the time. So we had a company called, the, which, which grew out of New York Computer Sciences, which was called Science and Finance, and that had been funded by um, some friends of the managing director of Reuters, and the idea was that Reuters would would ultimately acquire it, and we created predictions of the stock market. And uh, uh, so we we created this bit of neural network software that seemed to do quite a reasonable job of predicting the markets, uh, and it could be applied to anything. We we, tr- we tried it out with shares, we tried it out with Reuters share price, we we tried it out with uh, with currencies, and it was a reasonably impressive thing. And Reuters' idea was just to put it on their on their feed as a suggestive. This is just what we think might happen, not a guarantee that this is what what, what was going to happen. But uh, but the idea was that, that as well as putting out Live share prices and historical data. They might put out predictive prices as a sort of further interest to their uh, that the people who paid for the service. So this is the, the the Reuters data feed, the financial data feed. But anyway, this was their this was their grand idea. Um, until the lawyers looked at it and said, "Well, hang on, all these models are black boxes. And if we this model is a black box, we don't understand it. If people trade based on that, then." There's a problem if you've actually given somebody an algorithm on which they can base their base their trading. Then you can say, "Well, caveat emptor." You know, I've I've shown you this this how it works. You decide whether to believe it or not. But something that couldn't be presented as a um, in that kind of way was a problem for the lawyers. Um, and so I had one of the the most creative periods of my life where I actually switched from neural networks to fuzzy logic rule systems that did almost exactly the same thing and almost exactly as well but could explain themselves. And then about a month or two later, we were going through the whole due diligence process of Reuters buying the company and previous investors in the company uh, claimed to have slightly more um, IP rights than we had told them. And the Reuters lawyers (laughs) ran a mile (laughs) and and the whole deal didn't happen. But that was the sort of spur. up until then, I had lots of people saying, well, why the hell should I trust these these, these things? And that was a recurring theme. And what's interesting about now is that, is that people don't seem to ask that. Um, or rather, for a long time, these products have been sold without people asking those questions. And the the ill effects of not asking those questions have become clear in, in modern AI. And so people have started to... Uh, you know, there's a whole movement to... to um, uh, try to abate the forces of AI and to try to make AI explain itself a bit better. But it's interesting that these things go right back to the 90s. That was, I don't know, 1995 or something or other, the whole Reuters thing. And these issues have come up repeatedly ever since. but really, for most of that that, that time, the sort of nature-based time since then, the, the nature-based forms of AI have been dominant, certainly ever since deep learning started 2013 or so. The idea that a neural system is about the only system you can use has become almost dominant. And I'm amazed how often that's immediately the solution that people leap for when vast amounts of work has been done in parallel with that in all manner of other non-neural ways of of, of basically creating and um, uh, solving the same solutions that AI can solve. Now, having said that, uh, it, when it comes to vision and such, like deep learning is most definitely the only way to go. Um, but in loads of other areas, there are competitor uh, or algorithms that, that, that people fail to use. Um, but ever since that, that that experience with Reuters, I've been personally concentrating on non-neural methods and developing those uh, through my own products and such like
0: amazing thank you for that very condensed uh, but still very informative history yes. of the last <laughs> about 30 years of ai it's uh, it's it's very interesting that these issues within the technology have persisted you know longer than i've been born and people are still talking about them and don't seem to have approached other alternatives necessarily you touched a little bit on on deep learning as the, as the kind of go to. Why perhaps do you think that is the choice that everybody is making? Because to make? there are there are le- there
1: are very few people who are um, how can I put it who are innovators in that area of AI of AI of deep deep learning. There are only uh, and those people are all employed by these days. I think either by universities or by by big tech. So they'll have been snapped up by OpenAI or or one of those companies. And the dominance of the models creating deep learning models um, is a very expensive business one that that can really only be done by companies with quite deep pockets especially if it's a speculative thing like a new model of the english language or something you know which can take can require billions of words to uh, to to train and um, uh, and take a huge amount of computing power to generate so Given that there are there are a few real sort of people who understand how that stuff works and research in that, but there are plenty of people who can take those models and plug them together, who understand Python well enough to just grab a model and and um, and to modify it a little bit and to uh, use it for things. And almost all of the the sort of headline applications of AI at the moment, I think, are those kind of things. They're 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 models created by Big tech that are being reused by smaller companies, and that's exactly what big tech wants. Um, but that basically means that the stock of people who can innovate uh, in <laughs> and create new stuff is really low. And I'm not too sure that even that these non-neural methods are still taught in universities. I'm not really sure that it's a you know it's a it's a big subject. Um, uh, there there are still papers being written for sure, but I think um, the attraction of knocking out um, and this is certainly how the government sees it. Our government, the, the idea of knocking out um, a, a bunch of people who can just simply stitch together other people's models to rapidly create solutions is very attractive, um, and so nobody wants to look at things from from first principles again. So this, this is sort of why it's become dominant. The big tech companies have given away this model for free. Whether they'll always be free is another question. Um, and it's a little bit of a poison chalice. As I've said, in, in vision, I, I can't really think of an alternative. But certainly in text mining, for instance, that there, there are alternatives. And the, the sort of poison chalice is that um, that there you are using somebody else's model to solve a problem. Um, and there's there's another tech company just down the road which is doing exactly the same thing. And your, your, your result and their result are going to be almost identical. So where's the product differentiation? Where's the, um, you know, what? Where is the diversity in the marketplace that we hope for if we're all using the
0: same narrow range of big tech models to do things? Completely makes sense. It seems to be a question of uh, you know reusability and, yes, and, and people reusability. call it
1: democratization of AI, but I I think when when only the only the big tech companies own the the, the major bits of tech, where is the democracy? I, I I don't see it.
0: It, it seems almost akin to, you know, the printing press and and that ease of accessibility to everyone. Although now the keys to the printing press, or at least the parts to it, are in the hands of a of a minority. Is that the only issue that you can see with this kind of technology, um, in that everybody has the same thing, or are there are there further things? I know you know you've talked about black box systems and being. Well, I, that's the
1: principal thing that, that, that worries potential users. Um, there have been, along the way, there have been various blunders um, that, that, that tech companies have committed that have um, uh, sort of hit the the uh, imagination of the, well, of journalists anyway, if not of the general public. Um, you can think of, for instance, a, a, a chatbot system that was set up, I think, by Microsoft that would learn very rapidly from what people said, and people just just <laughs> and people just uh, all that ever uh, that, that people sort of uh, uh, put in as sort of text was was either sort of, sort of fascist rhetoric or racist rhetoric or whatever, and the, the system very rapidly learned to be a bigot, um, and so they took it off. Offline. I mean, that, that, that was one example. Um, the fact that early image recognition often um, misclassified people that had darker skin, for instance, and, and uh, made some real really big blunders there. Um, the fact that uh, face recognition is, um, there are some classic examples with our Metropolitan Police. I think i mean i'm i'm not going to get the numbers exactly right but I, I think that they that at one point a couple of years ago they they set the system up at nottingham notting hill carnival and they they took in they looked at over a thousand faces they arrested 17 people and only one person ended up being guilty um it's <laughs> that that kind of ratio so those those kind of things have begun to fix in in the mind of the of the populace that that um that this stuff is not particularly reliable um, and it's quite dangerous because uh, you know if you're the example I was, using, I remember seeing a pitch from one company that that claimed to be able to use vision to be able to detect whether somebody was acting like a terrorist in an airport. And so I don't know what a terrorist acts like in an airport, but they swore blind that they could they could detect potential terrorists by the way they behaved in an airport. And so if you happen to accidentally the same way you can imagine being dragged off and cavity searched by this i mean where's who'd you go to complain to for that you know what how can you go back to the to the the, the organization that, that created the, this thing and and get them to fix it i mean it's they wouldn't know how to fix it it's it's a black box um and this has led these kind of things have led um the eu for instance to to take a quite a strong stance against AI America is now sort of moving in that direction a bit too under the Biden um, uh, yeah, government. So, so it's uh, um, so yeah, the the critical thing in in the EU is this idea of explainability. So if a uh, th- this this was signalled about about a, a year and a half ago, I remember sticking it on my website first about a year and a half ago, where they said they were going to do this, and they now have that the basic idea is that if a computer makes a decision about a human being that either doesn't show them something it might have shown them like doesn't show them a product it might have shown them or um just simply uh doesn't give them a loan that, it, that they that they think feel that they are entitled to or whatever then they have the right to actually ask for an explanation and an explanation given by a human being and that's problematic deliberately chosen i think to be problematic for deep learning systems now this isn't to say by the way that there aren't loads of research going on to try to understand what deep learning systems are doing right there's tons and tons of it but i'm not really sure yet that it's effective um and the experience <clears throat> the first time around when i first did that and we're, we're talking going back to the 80s and 90s or whatever but the experience that we had then was that as soon as you try to to limit a system so that it just simply um uh so that it, it, it can be understood so that, for instance, you limit the way that, that the structure of a neural nest grows so that you can actually understand the structure. As soon as you do that, you lessen the power of a neural network and you suddenly end up with a system that's not very good. And I think that that problem is still there. Um, I think that's just repeated um, again. So so the, the, the EU has effectively come up with a, a big blocker. It looks like America might, too, as part of the Biden anti <laughs> which is which is silly the Biden anti tech stuff considering that, that tech got Biden elected that's really quite a strange thing, but but that's um, that's that, that's where they're going currently.
0: It Seems like re- legislation and regulation is finally catching up. Even in the UK, we've seen that with the new national AI strategy seems to be the first steps in the right direction of understanding. What the UK's approach is is going to be. Um, I've just realised that I've completely forgotten to ask uh, what, uh, what uh, coffee you brought along today, um, or if yes, you, yes, you I brought a drink. Coffee, and that's yeah, uh, I, I, I the purpose of coffee, the uh, so coffee. Yes, I have, I
1: have tons of it here.
0: Um, I'm glad we're in the yeah, same boat. I'll, I'll so say cheers be. on that. That you've you've talked a little alluded a little bit to alternatives here um, in terms of solutions. The big question for me at the, this point really is, what does that look like? Is it a question of using the right models? As you say, You know, there's, there are issues with deep learning and it seems those regulatory practices are pushing people towards having to use different types of models, or is it a case of getting the right data? You know, uh, your example of someone who walks like a terrorist through the airport seems like ludicrous data to be holding on to. Um, so is it? Is I mean, it with AI obviously it's always a data issue. But is it more model or more data when you're? Looking if you choose a different set of sections? models and they do exist, or
1: different ways of generating models and different ways of representing models, then then you you still got the same problem with data. But you can more clearly see what you don't have in terms of data. I mean, for instance, <laughs> I should. Sure, I, I, Reached the point where I have to talk about my own stuff, really. Um, but my really, really early on, <laughs> the very first time I started to, to create a fuzzy logic based system that, that could do supervised learning that's learning from examples. So that's trying to do what basically uh, early neural networks did, where you, you have a set of examples and a set of expected outputs, and you just basically run those through the system until it learns to produce the right output, give them the right input. Um, and with fuzzy logic system, one of the interesting things very early on that came out of that was the ability to say, imagine that there's a, a, a sort of world of, of, of data, and when you present that to a system, you only present part of that of that world because you have to sample it, right? There's a, so that, that might be only a subset of faces or whatever, or only a subset of... of um, uh, credit histories or whatever it is that, that you're trying to do. You you don't present all of them, you present a subset, a ho- hopefully representative subset, but no subset is ever fully representative. And the, the the big problems with these things always arise on edge cases, things that you didn't, you know, things that you didn't expect. Um, a classic case of that being recently when they op- had the a- Apple credit card and, and they had calibrated it for billionaires and it turned out that all the billionaires. Got, got amazingly good credit ratings and their wives got very poor credit ratings. I don't even remember that that was a big big sort of furore um, and that's that's an example of, of you know missing out some some of some of the data. but with non-neural methods you can actually train a system so that if you have a totally new um, example that you've never seen before, the system's capable of telling you. So all neural network systems sort of um, fill in the dots. So sorry, all machine learning systems fill in the dots. I mean, the whole process of of modeling is really producing a model that will give you results in between the the training points. So in in between sort of examples that you've got, will give you, will interpolate between those examples. And when when you're looking at examples that are extreme, then the the interpolation can get very poor. And that's when you get, very bad classifications. Um, And uh, deep learning systems can't really tell you that they're in an area that they didn't learn from. Whereas it's quite possible to train fuzzy logic systems or whatever to, to, to generate a fuzzy logic algorithm that, that will say, hang on, I didn't learn on this kind of thing. This is really an area I don't know anything about. So the possibility of saying, don't know, instead of a classification to actually, instead of a Boolean classification, like terrorist, non-terrorist or whatever, you have the possibility of saying, terrorist, non-terrorist, don't know, right? And that's that, that possibility of being able to, to score your output is a really, really strong thing. Um, and it's astonishing to me that these these issues are still ignored. I mean I first recognised these were important and other people did too 20 30 years ago, right? So so it's it's really quite quite strange. So so it's possible to construct algorithms that have that, that ability, that they tell you when they don't know, they tell you what they what they know. So in my particular system it's fuzzy logic rules, and those those rules are organized um, to appear sort of a bit like plain English, so if bunching additions, then something will be something or other. Um, they use fuzzy sets. Fuzzy sets are, 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 are things that we use in in language like small, tall, small, big, you know, large, whatever. It uses those, those kind of identifiers. And so it produces rules that, that are really quite understandable and things that you could take and, and give to potential Uh, upset customers as the reason why you didn't um,
0: give them a loan or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong here. A more transparent solution means architecting a model or designing a model that is explainable to human beings. Yes, really, that's fundamentally it.
1: um, And as I said, if you do that with deep learning, you tend to constrain it, whereas if you actually... Go back. To, so, if you remember, right at the beginning, I said there's this war between between um, uh, nature-inspired and language and logic things. If you go back to the language and logic way of doing things, then you actually have that ability to explain what's going on. Um, and probably properly engineered, uh, it, it it doesn't just explain itself to an expert. It can it can explain itself to a layman um, quite easily. The the big area of, of change, I think. Um, so I've I spent years and years producing um, systems that that do various different kinds of learning so um, again you, the, the, there are three or four kinds of basic kinds of learning there's supervised learning which is which I talked about earlier where you learn by loads of examples there's unsupervised learning which is um, what babies do to first learn language and what I, I, I remember doing when I first learned German I learned it by immersion I lived in Germany and initially, um, you know, listening to people speak German was all, <laughs> you just couldn't understand a word. Um, and babies have exactly the same problem. Um, but I discovered sooner or later, in a totally unsupervised way, I, I, there was no feedback. I just did it. I began to separate the words out, and then it began to, to make sense. That's a, a sort of fairly obvious example of, of um, unsupervised learning. Then there's another thing called reinforcement learning, which is really quite interesting. And that's that's where you have a system um that you need to to fix or need to make better to optimize or whatever Um, and you um you you uh and you don't really know what the perfect solution is but you have a sort of but but you can tell whether one solution is better than another so-called learning with the critic and that's really quite sort of exciting and gives you the 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 ability to optimize systems Um, i know people who've used that on for instance on formula one suspensions. I've used it in in uh, finance generating trading systems or whatever. Uh, recently, daisy.ai, your, that Brainpool's, um product uses exactly the same thing. But the, the reason why I'm g- going through these is because they're actually uh, fuzzy logic or there are uh, uh, you know, rule-based systems that do all of those things. You can do any one of those kinds of, kinds of learning with rule-based systems. So they there's actually and I've been working well on this for years, but there's, that you can actually there are parallel ways of doing anything that you think that you have to do with deep learning. And they often have the benefit of being a lot speedier. Um, they, they, uh, they're independent things, i.e. you having written a solution whenever you own it, right? You can't there's no problem of looking at a bit of it and saying yes, but but Google owns a big chunk of this IP. I don't you know I only own a bit of it. Having created a solution that's yours, and you have the ability then to explain to people how you arrived at that particular solution too, even if it's a very creative solution, as in the Daisy example or all manner of, uh, of examples of um, reinforcement learning, where you you have you, you can actually explain how you got there, um, and that gives people a lot of um, confidence that you've actually got a good solution. Okay. In the early days, people were very, very cynical about AI, and you had to work very hard to persuade them that they really ought to build an AI system in. Now, bizarrely, people are very unsynical about AI. You have to warn them that they're they're about to build in something that that is potentially problematic. Without mentioning names, for instance, I'll give you a good example of, of of a failure of these things. I won't tell you the company, but I work with a company that does those um, a couple of years ago, and things may well be much better, but it 's one of those companies that does those um, uh, mad things that you see for instance on the the um, national health app you know where you have to have to photograph your your um, passport or your driver 's license and then they take a video of you moving your head or holding a bit of another thing i 've come across is holding a bit of paper with a bit of text on it or whatever. Um, one of the the first companies who, who who did that I worked with a couple of years ago, um, and they'd obviously their, their business model was that they could um, that this would work ninety five percent of the time, and then you had to hire a couple of people to to cope with the with the edge cases where where it didn't work. Uh, and I, I noticed in working with them and sending them sort of various stuff, examples of, of <laughs> bad, bad um, passports and, and de- deliberately messed up stuff, but I, I and, and also good stuff, I noticed a vast difference between, you know, a response time of seconds, a response time of hours. And it became clear that they had a massive team in India. Um, and they were sending all their edge cases to India. And and their edge cases were much bigger than they, they expected to boot. So, um, uh, and so, their their business was nowhere near as profitable. I think as they, I don't know that they told their investors this either. But their business was nowhere near as profitable as they would hoped because the AI didn't work nearly as often as they expected. And it does rather raise a a a, a worry that um, um, that you know that vital stuff might have leaked. You know, you're sending. Your passport image and stuff like that off to a, 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 another country. Um, that in itself is, is worrying. So uh, that, 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 I guess, is probably one of the most successful areas of, of AI in that in, you can't get the NHS app without doing that stupid dance. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, I'm actually quite worried about it.
0: I, I really don't know what those people are doing. Yes, it seems to be a question of shielding your data properly and looking after it yeah. properly. Data protection, I think, is the word I'm looking for here. Having good data protection as well as choosing the right model. Yes, and I'm really,
1: country. really not terribly sure um, that, that that those people who regulate such things have actually considered that that might be a a, a potential data leak point. Um, almost every I, I I tried to actually uh, uh, to to set myself up with. Um, Uh, some some cryptocurrency recently and almost every cryptocurrency vendor now requires you to go through that stupid rigmarole and they're always using presumably they may be using the, the same AI vendor they might be might be using different ones but um but but it's all the same rigmarole and you think to yourself well hang on a minute how many people around the world are suddenly getting a picture of my passport as a result of this you know, what's happening to this data? What proof is there? So the FCA has forced these companies to, to do this because they don't want innocence trading in crypto. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get hold of the crypto in order to to, to get some, um, uh, uh, some contracts built on the Ethereum blockchain, which is a, a sort of very innocent reason for having crypto. But you have to have a bit of crypto to do that, right? Um, but and I'm not at, at, at all attempting to to risk my whatever fortune I've got, which is not a lot, on 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 crypto trading. So I don't really need protecting. But um, so the FCA has enforce those kind of things. But I wonder whether it enforces data protection on the mechanisms that they've ended up inadvertently generating.
0: It's interesting then because you know we see it from there seems to be mistakes on the part of. Both regulators and businesses that allow you to create systems that are open to you know we talk about algorithm bias quite a lot um and it seems to be something that could open you up to that or at least not just an algorithm bias but a system that is set up against the consumer or the consumer doesn't get anything out of it what can we maybe as you know, regular human beings who just want to buy a bit of Ethereum do about that, if anything? Mm, Very little.
1: Um, Government has now got um, got itself sort of firmly wrapped up in this, this kind of stuff. Um, It's uh, big tech too. And I'm really not terribly sure what we can do. Um, I I mean, if if you want to get hold of a bit of Ethereum, then, then Use your graphics card to make it is about the only. <laughs> if you if you do that, then then you know you can you can avoid all the other hassles. Um, in the end, you can get past these loops and or, oh sorry, get past these these hurdles, and you can get uh, you can get signed up with these organisations. If you couldn't do that, they'd cease to exist after all. But it's amazingly difficult and been deliberately made difficult. Um, and uh, it's not getting easier. I you know, th- there are attempts to clobber the big tech companies and to try to force them to, to not take advantage of our data so much, but it's obvious that, that Facebook, Google or whatever have made their fortune on the back of our data. And that's not something that they're gonna give up very lightly. Listen, there are, there are political paths, but then then so this would turn into a political podcast, wouldn't it? So maybe, maybe we all to
0: avoid that. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's true. Uh... I won't be advocating for, <laughs> for anarchy in the UK uh, just yet. Um, but I'd like to I'd like to circle back a little bit just to talk about models and ownership of models. It seemed that you were alluding to owning your own IP um, or intellectual property was the only way, really, of of making those transparent, explainable models. Now, given that the there are more off-the-shelf solutions, as we would call them, are black boxes
1: yes yes i I mean clearly if if somebody uses my stuff and they most certainly could to create models um then they're still reliant on me right They're, they're they're reliant on my my particular company and it's 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 ownership of those fundamental models but um and there isn't an open source system yet that you can use um but I still think, I think having constructed, a, even having constructed a model using my stuff where you might say, well, you're, then you're, you're reliant on the infrastructure that I've got in my software as a service system. The fact still remains that it would not be a difficult job to take that and uh, reproduce it yourself if you really wanted to. Not, a, uh, not, not, a, not an impossibility. So it would be a very expensive impossibility if suddenly... If, if, if you'd used a, a, a Google neural model of some kind or other, you'd have, to re, you'd have to build your own. Normally, it's like a quarter of a million dollars a throw, I think, on those kind of things. So you can see the problems that companies have doing that. And also you'd need actually one of the one of the things that's a real clobberer for people is collecting the initial data set to train these enormous models. So initial data set of images, for instance, yeah. or the initial data set for the language models where they've taken you know, literally billions of words and run it through the systems. Um, and the, the pure aggro of connecting those. Actually, incidentally, pin that, that idea for a second. Another fun thing about the language models, another potential problem um, is is um, uh, the, what effect it might have on language. So, so Google, OpenAI, various companies have created models of Google, as an example of this, a model of the English language, which is used in a lot of uh, AI systems, chatbots and such like. And they do this by taking uh, vast amounts of, of text and learning sequences in those texts. But if you happen to speak some, if you have to use a regional dialect, we're not talking about understanding speech, but understanding written text. But if you happen to, to use unusual words or whatever, or have an unusual sort of grammar, um, you're in, you, you can be potentially in trouble. So if you're a Yorkshire person and you try to use that, that word with the models, you'll find that they just simply won't understand you. right? Um, and what this means is that, that, that ultimately when interacting with computers, we'll have to use their language, not ours. And so whole bits of usage might well fall out of use as a result of, of the selections that people made very early on about what they put into the training. So this is the, the alternative to, you know, failing to catch uh, particular kinds of face or something with facial recognition because they were never in the initial training set. This is the, the sort of language version of that, which is that obscure forms and such like would drop
0: out quite rapidly out of, out of such such models. And that's problematic too. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting, and those models aren't set up in a way that they would learn those new words and, no, and incorporate them. Really not. You have, you have to retrain the whole thing, as I understand it. So,
1: what you can no, do is, is. is change the back end. So, so you know, deep deep learning. God, I'm hardly going to give a <laughs> a complete description of deep deep learning now, but but it has an unsupervised front end and a retrainable back end. And, and what people do is, is take, the, take a, an existing model and use it for a different purpose is, is the, the, they retrain the, the back end bit. But all the word associations are buried in the, in the main section. And those are not going to change. Basically, you would have to relearn the whole set so so that ownership of that initial set of data which is the something big tech companies could do because you know Facebook could just mine everything on Facebook and Google can just mine everything that they they collect on the on the web whatever it's easy for them expensive but easy um, for the rest of us it's exceedingly hard um and to so, you know following there there's a big barrier to anybody else following after them uh something I hadn't mentioned though is is knowledge graphs as a as a as a sort of we were talking earlier, weren't we, about how um, about how how you do things in an alternative way, uh, and the big hope, I think. Uh, so I was sort of heading there, saying that I've been working on these these um, these fuzzy logic based systems for a long time. But the thing that's galvanized that area is um, the growth of things called knowledge graphs, and that that's a really interesting area. That's. Something that actually gives the sort of um, the language and logic side a sort of uh, a boost uh, because they're, they're, they're things' being taken seriously a number of papers being written on knowledge graphs is growing dramatically um oh, knowledge graphs are just simply a a way, a graphical way of describing knowledge that's very similar to stuff that people automatically do like mind mapping uh, and even per charts and those Gantt charts and those those kind of things where you you just basically are describing the objects that exist in a in a in a problem, and how they're linked to each other, and um, handling them in a, in a sort of graphical way. So, my system draws them in two D and three D. Um, we're just sort of working on a VR system where you can stick on an Oculus Quest and, and fly through these things because some knowledge graphs do get very very big, um, and and the, the, the ability cool. to sort of go into them and and fly around is a is a, a fairly uh, it. it Makes life a whole load easier. Makes it easier to understand what's going on. So, so that that looks like a bunch of sort of coloured nodes floating around you with links. And if you get close to a node, it tells you what it's for and what it does. And where we're heading to is the ability to edit things on that node. So, I you know, I think most of us have probably played with mind maps and such like, and you understand the idea that a uh, uh, that uh, a a node. A circle, you know, a sphere or whatever, corresponds to a thing in the real world, um, and a connection is some kind of link. And you can also think of those often as being a little bit like nouns and verbs, where where um, nodes are are um, uh, nouns corresponding to real things, and and uh, the connections can be verbs. And each of these nodes can have attributes which are effectively adjectives or sort of adjectival anyway, which are characteristic of those nodes. And it's it, it's a very sort of human understandable thing to say the world's, um, to describe the world in those, those kind of terms. And, and it's got sort of deep philosophical basis in the you know, way that Aristotle viewed the world. And, and it also corresponds quite nicely to the way that... Um, uh, natural language processing has seen um, uh, sees the elements of the world, the way that our grammar and our language handles those objects, and so um, building those those kind of models, we can easily understand them. There's something about their structure that makes it uh, easier for human beings to understand. And then the, the mind maps and such like are passive models; they don't do anything. Uh, you. If you've, if, you've gone and, um, if you've used a bit, bit of software for uh, creating a Gantt chart or something, then it actually can be an active model. So you can say, oh, I'm three weeks late on this, and suddenly the whole system reorganizes itself, right? But my maps are generally passive models. And what my software effectively does is make them active models. So they become a real model of the real thing, and you can interrogate that thing. Um, you can assume that it's a generic model for something and then put in specific data um, to do with a a particular situation, and then it will uh, it will actually ask you for the data it hasn't got, and keep going until it actually is able to predict whatever it is that you want to predict. Um, and that's a really strong and interesting thing. And it will do um, that. That kind of technology can be used in supervised, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. And then there's another thing which is which n- nothing else can do really well. It has been done in neural nets and such like, but there's not a lot of focus on this. But one of the things you can do with such models is to work away from a point. So rather than sort of an analytical process working towards an answer, you can work away um, lateral thinking almost, uh, if you like, and say, well, what's possible given this vast arrangement that I've set up? So an example of this that I worked on. A few months ago, for instance, somebody, a startup, wanted me to create a model of the music industry and a bunch of uh, courses related to the, so they, they generated music industry courses, courses to teach you to get into the music industry. And they wanted a a, a model of those, those courses and a model of the jobs that you had in the music industry. Um, and the idea was to map all those things together in one enormous knowledge graph. So you had all the courses that you might apply for all joined together, so one course led to another, led to another, and then the jobs that you might get when you got into the music industry and what jobs that they'd lead to. So you could do something analytical like saying, well, I want to end up being a being a music producer. What courses do I have to study? And that's analogous to using Google Maps and finding the path through the knowledge graph, right? Or possible paths through the knowledge graph and then deciding, oh, you've got to have these things to end up being a, a um, to, to, to end up being a, record producer. But you you could do it the other way around and say, here I am, I've done these three courses, what things could I do? Which is what, what we never do with Google Maps. We never say, what places could I go to? right? Because the answer's infinite. With a constrained model, you can actually say, well, you, you could do this. And you can come up with a list of things that somebody might um, might do. And that, so that that idea of, of searching... For possibilities expanding away from a point, lateral thinking effectively in a machine is is a is a new thing, a thing not very often. Evidence, basically, but but the, but the, 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 in the area of ed tech, um, this is really quite an interesting possibility. The the ability to say to somebody, well, where you are with your qualifications, these are all the things that you could actually do, and to formalise that. Um, at various times, various relatives of mine have talked to to. Uh, advisors, what what I call them? Career advisors, and been given some very natural advice. Whereas um, this, this 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 kind of thing has the the possibility of giving you really quite consistent advice and quite sensible advice.
0: I worry that people will get caught up, perhaps in the more visualization aspects of, of knowledge graphs as a technology. Specifically, perhaps with the example of edtech. Could you tell us a little bit about how? you know, how this functions as, as an artificial intelligence um, solution and also more on the perspective on why is this, why is this so beneficial to use as a technology well, compared, compared to perhaps um, black box systems specifically, but also human beings as you, well. The, the, to. The, the thing that makes them
1: active rather than passive is the ability to put rule sets, my fuzzy logic rule sets at, uh, on each node. So to determine whether you traverse to the next node in the, in the whole system, how you move across it, you actually interrogate those rule sets on a node as you go through. So that's the AI bit, basically. And those rule sets can be learned from data. So you can machine learn those rule sets. So you end up with a, with a bunch of rules you can understand, but it tells you based on what's going on in the, in the world. So the, the example in the, in the, um, in the, the music industry thing, uh, is that you might uh, mine job adverts, for instance, um, for information as to which job leads to which other job and, and, uh, and the likelihood of you getting those jobs and whatever. So you can actually take properly presented if you could get hold of a... a um, but if you could actually get hold of, of, of job data that you could interrogate easily, then you could um, update... You could use machine learning to actually create the structure Um, and to modify the structure and to say oh we've actually found people who've who've taken this job and have done taken this path and we've never found this previously but now here it is so that's an example of machine learning but it's made explicit um, that that there's a possibility that we hadn't seen previously and the data's updated and so now now you can see that but where you can also learn the rules that say how you have to move from one step to the next directly And an important thing to mention is when we talk about rules, um, fuzzy logic rules have a very different characteristic from Boolean rules. Um, Boolean rules, generally, one of the reasons why expert systems faded um, in the 90s was because they relied on um, Boolean rules to function. And as we know from our Legal system. You know, all that happens if you if you have to say somebody's innocent or guilty, or have to find for the plaintiff or the defendant, that you end up um, creating a fragile system where you're forever having to annotate the legal codex, and get it gets more and more complicated, and and every day there are more things for a judge to look up about previous rulings that will determine what their next ruling is. Right, and that's an example of the fragility of a Boolean system. Fuzzy logic systems don't have that they actually generalize really nicely um, you require far less rules to this is a bit unprovable, but this is nonetheless my experience far less rules to represent uh, the same problem in a fuzzy logic system as you do with a with a boolean system so um, if you just use boolean systems then yes you you would end up with a with a um, potentially a, a just as fragile a model as as you might get from other things. But the great beauty is to use fuzzy logic for this, the really important thing. Um, uh, that's what we've generated in my particular product. I mean, it's not at all the only way to go about uh, producing alternatives to um, neural systems. Uh, there are loads and loads of other things that one might do, um, but it's, uh, it's the one that I've worked on and bet the bank on, I guess.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. um I, I think it might just be worth just giving our more uninitiated listeners perhaps just a brief description of the differences between billions, uh, billion uh, rules, and yeah. Fuzzy all right. Problems. Okay. The, the, the classic thing, right?
1: The thing I was using lectures. Here we go. Is the Socrates paradox of Zeno about 530 BC, and um, this this, this sorites means, uh, I think, in Greek, a pile of stones. I'm not a Greek speaker, but in ancient Greek, I think it meant a small pile of stones. And the, the sorites paradox goes, three pies, three pile, a, a pile of stones consisting of three stones is a small pile of stones. If I add a stone to that pile or a small pile of stones, it's still a small pile of stones. Therefore, all piles of stones are small. Now, this baffled the ancient world, because obviously at some point or other, as you keep adding stones to the pile, it becomes a medium-sized pile of stones or a large pile of stones or something rather. But um, if you use classical the classical idea of sets, i.e. you're either in a group or you're out of a group, right? You're, you know, you're either a criminal or you're a or or you're not or you're the, the, the various classifications that we that we damn each other with in our in our society if you use that that classical sort of set um approach you just can't solve that problem but if you assume that that small is something you can be in and out of you can be partially in and partially out then suddenly you can explain that whole system, and the implication of that is that is that a, a any statement has got a degree of truth, not an absolute truth, but a degree of truth. So we've never actually physically met, but I'm foot eleven, I'm five foot eleven and a half, and one might say anybody over six foot tall is tall. So what am I then? <laughs> am I point you know, nine tall, point nine five tall? So when you start explaining the world in those terms, uh, something systems that use that that particular way of, of representing knowledge become much more expressive. And also you can take those those degrees of truth and put them all the way through the processing, um, which is what my my particular system does. So when you've got uncertain data, you end up with results that have got their uncertainty attached right at the end. That just goes all the way through the system. Using black boxes you tend to end up with uh, you know, he's a he's a he's a terrorist or he isn't. Um, Whereas using this particular system, you end up with with a a reasonable and an understandable approach to determining you know that this is point two criminal or point three criminal behavior that we've spotted here. If you see what I mean, and then you can decide whether to whether to react to that or not, um, and that's very much better than a just go get him or don't go get him kind of approach. Um, Fuzzy logic isn't the only thing that, that, that does that. There are things called Bayesian belief networks that do exactly the same thing with probabilities. Um, but uh, I don't know whether you've ever looked at Bayesian belief networks, but large ones are what's called NP-complete, which means that they basically are in, incalculable, um, and very mathematically unwieldy. Whereas the great beauty of fuzzy logic is it's very mathematically wieldy, if there is such a word as wieldy. I don't know if there is, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it, it's something that you can um, easily use. Uh, the processing time isn't too dramatic, um, but, but certainly the, 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 the Boolean thing is fine, is fine. Autonomy, bit of a dirty word at the moment, autonomy company <laughs> used that technique almost sort of solidly. Um, and, uh, and I think it worked after a fashion, obviously not well enough to please Hewlett Packard.
0: Um, I think that's a that's a, a great description actually, and I think it gives a little bit more clarity on the output differences of what we mean by transparency. And I think you know, in a black box system, then they would say uh, if we have six footers tall in your example, then they would say that you are short and, and I am tall, or perhaps uh, you are not tall and I am tall uh, would probably be that the way that they would. Uh, added up even though there's only about four or five inches uh, in between us Um, whereas in this uh, (laughs) somewhat unfortunately uh, duck for door frames kind of person Um, but if we take uh, a more fuzzy rule set uh, within your example we might say you know you are quite tall and i am tall uh we can have a range of things and also we can have that clarity of Andy is five foot eleven and a half. and a half. Dominic is uh, six foot four, I, I think. <laughs> as, as sure, well as and, and then, then, like then
1: there are various sort of bits of reasoning that you could do based on that. Like, um, you know, I would fit in the Formula One car and you wouldn't, or something. If you see what I mean, the, 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 the sort of uh, the, the, the reasoning that follows from that. Um, uh,
0: That's a useful piece of data as well to have, uh, whether or not someone <laughs> would well, yes, fit Formula not. One yes. car.
1: <laughs> Pretty pretty rare that anybody even sits in form Formula one car, but there are there are, are, are examples of that. Um, uh, for instance, if you're designing cars, then who you design for, um, you know the, the the sort of extremes that you have to handle. Uh, yeah, if you treating those as as, as fuzzy sets makes a, a lot lot more sense. Um, heights not not the greatest example, but a whole load of other other things crop up that are stability for instance, or whatever in terms of um, reliability, in terms of whether to give somebody a loan or not, for instance, is something you can infer and give fuzzy
0: sets to. I think we've given good understanding of what the benefits of some of these transparent solutions are compared to more black box systems. Um, you know, you, you get real clarity of output and also for something that is... Essentially, there to inform us, it seems that we should be as informed about its information as possible. We need that explainable m- end model. Are there any further benefits that you'd like to kind of touch on over more black box systems? Um, particularly, I think, efficiency. I think that's what it's going to come down to because. It's it's easier to go and grab yourself an off the shelf black box solution that everybody knows how to use, um, but it's going to give you a better solution perhaps if you have a more transparent solution. So I think the real, the decision point is going to be that final benefit of what partly that I, I mean one of the things that's, that that's always matters
1: and is often ignored in. Um, general software engineering is that in the end, you've got to find people who can maintain the stuff. So uh, if you choose to use an obscure language, for instance, and, and you know r- researchers in, in computer science are always doing this, they're always using the most obscure language going. But if you choose to use an obscure language, then you'll find you'll never be able to hire anybody who can maintain it. Um, and so to a certain extent, you know th- th- this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because big tech has made uh, these, these models very cheap because um, because there's lots of Python that can be, can be purchased or, or it can be just downloaded that enables you to stitch these things together. People have learned to program in Python and nothing but, right? Which I, uh, Python, I have to think, is a pretty crap language, really. But, but that, that's, that's become the, the, the norm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, you've got a whole lot of people who know how to do that. And while that carries on, of course, then, then people will look at my stuff and say, yeah, but very few people know how to use that. Um, there isn't a vast body of, of, of programmers who can just automatically do it. I mean, my solution to that is to make it so simple that people can pick it up really quickly. And my experience is that, that people do pick it up really quickly. It really doesn't take more than a sort of day or so to understand the, the basic processes of the whole thing. And that, that and, and it's because of that, that humanness of the way that the data is presented. And this is something, believe me, I've been working on a lot because I've realized that unless I make it really, really easy, Nobody will take this stuff on, um, uh, you know. It, because of that, there's a hope that, that that people will look at other methods. But if we just simply say, "Oh, well, we have to do what the what big tech companies say, use their models," then that'll continue. It'll be a self fulfilling prophecy, um, and we'll we'll go down one particular avenue. But if if you publicise the fact and I hope you're doing it today that there are other ways of doing things, <laughs> then, then people will, will maybe begin to look at them and realize the benefits. It, it's always the same with almost every technology you can think of, you know, it's, it's like VHS and Betamax or something.
0: Um, so it's, it's less of a question of, you know, one is more efficient than the other or more effective than the other. They surely both could be as effective yes. as each other. <laughs> but it's a question of resources and maintenance. Yes, the actual generation process, I mean,
1: I'd argue that, that the generation process can be much quicker because you're, if you're using non-neural methods, you can see what you've done wrong and you can fix it very fast. Whereas with neural methods, it might take quite a long time for you to go through that, that updating process. Of, of uh, and In fact, you may never realize what you've done wrong until you put the thing in production and suddenly... things go wrong which you know is the kind of process we've seen occurring quite often you know the apple credit card thing was a good example of putting something into production and finding out then suddenly that it didn't work and there have been lots and lots of other cases in fact all the cases that, that i've mentioned are cases where somebody's put a system into production and then found out that it um that it doesn't work so there's much better testability if you can see what's going on you can test it if you can't see what's going on it's really quite hard to test it you have to just Again, this, I, I mean, it would be wrong to imply that the, the, the practitioners of deep learning aren't putting a lot of effort into this testing. They are a huge amount, but, um, but it's still nonetheless harder. Uh, a computational um, burden is higher too, I think. So just simply how much you'll pay in, in cloud computing costs uh, using a neural system as compared to a non-neural, um, you know, it's going to be much higher for, for a, a neural system. Um, you know, the, the, the models, the, the size of the models you have to keep, the, um, the amount of RAM you have to have in your virtual machines, et cetera, all higher. Um, but uh, up until now, we, we've just been, or, or the, the, the current zeitgeist is, well, this is how you do it and we'll, we'll just swallow any, um, any drawbacks um, and people are unaware that there are other ways
0: of doing things that, uh, that actually might be much more efficient. You know, we started with a bit of the history of AI. So I think it's only apt that we end with the future. I have some um, guesses as to where you think the future might be headed. Perhaps if you are more cynical, you can give us some examples of what we would do to improve the future. But I was wondering, uh, what do you think the implications of pursuing Black box or transparent AI are in the future, and, and what is? Well, what is the I think that there will be a, a
1: switch to so-called white box. We haven't mentioned white box, but white box is is the alternative to black box. Basically, it's just any system that explains itself. I believe that there will be a switch. I certainly hope that there will. Um, I think we're into we're heading in a more general sense. We're heading for a reevaluation of. Um, the ideas that we've allowed, that, that, that society has sort of built up over the past 20 years, that that we live in a very predictable world and AI will is one of the tools for sorting it out. That's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of, of the reality that we're in. Most of the, the things that are of interest to us are actually not predictable, no matter how much AI we throw at them. Um, And I believe that one of the things that will occur in the future is is the beginnings of humility in the the AI world. I do notice tendencies, um, uh, for instance, in in a project uh, related to BrainPool recently. um, When it came to time series prediction, the the BrainPool guy who was working on that was very sensible about what can be predicted and what can't be. And so I I was impressed um that that, uh, that clearly this has sunk in in quite a few areas that that um that you can't just you know when i when i first started off in ai there was a general assumption that no matter what time series you threw at a, at a system you'd be able to predict it um and then <laughs> then i realized there was a whole bunch of things that you that you couldn't predict um and that was the, the reason for me doing my phd in chaos theory which was basically looking at why you can't predict those systems and what characteristics they have and and why there are such things. Uh, And this explains why you can't predict the financial markets and why you can't predict the weather, et cetera, et cetera. But we live in a world still where we tend to think that these things are predictable. Um, The whole history of our COVID lockdown, for instance, and the terrible, terrible predictions that have been generated and treated as gospel by the government. Um, The the, the failure to realize that, that how a um, how a sort of pandemonium or whatever pans out when you're actively changing the rules continually as it goes. that you know, failure to realise that you've created an unstable dynamic system as a result of that that can't be predicted. That was something that baffled me continually watching that that process going on. They, all these these so-called experts continually saying, oh, we, we can predict this, That the, the infection rate will be this and the infection rate will be that. It never was. Um and it amazes me that 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 um people thought it was so I, yeah one of the things i do believe is a is a correction to this a scientistic world view right of everything's predictable uh, um and our government can control everything and it may take a while before we get we get to that point but i believe that there will be a backlash um the people who come up with the backlash may be considered luddites i don't know but um but there will be. <laughs> and the world is not nearly as deterministic
0: as as some people would have you believe. Amazing. Thank you uh, so much for being a guest on the podcast today, Angie. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to reach out and chat to a little bit? Well, um,
1: basically it, anything that's put through my, my site, dal.ai, Darl.ai, D-A-R-L um, and if they really want to talk to me, Andy at dull.ai um, is that's, that's, the, that's my website, and um, that's where you can find out more stuff about what I'm doing, what I'm getting up to. And um, yeah, if you got a project, uh, give us a shout or give Brain a shout, of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. I don't have to shout out myself now. Uh, amazing. Uh, thank you for your time, uh-huh. Andy. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the AI Coffee Hour. If you're interested in discovering a little more about AI, then why not take a minute to check out our other episodes? Or if you're ready to take the next steps on your AI journey, why not contact us at contact at brainpool.ai to find out what AI can do for your business.